one aspect of the book is to sort of draw attention to technologies and the fast-moving technological edge and how governments support particular technologies because they fit into their political and ideological agenda. And this is something that comes out really clearly in Russian history, and it explains why Stalin liked tractors and explains why Putin likes CRISPR-Cas9. But it isn't just about autocratic regimes and dictators. <laughs> Democratic governments and Western capitalist liberal democracies have also supported technologies. And this had intended effects to make farming more efficient, but it also had unintended effects. And so the second big point that I'm hoping to bring across with the book is, is really that agriculture isn't just what happens on the farm. It's really also about the food we eat. It's about the governments that want to put particular foods on citizens' plates. So governments play a role and citizens play a role. And food and agriculture is both about the sort of material facts of bread and other food commodities But it's also about the political life and the cultural meaning of food that are sometimes left out of the picture. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie van der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Susanne Wengle, Associate Professor in Political Science at the University of Notre Dame in USA. She was a Urias Fellow at SCAS in the academic year of 2018-2019. This is the third episode in our theme Infrastructures, and we will talk about Susanne Wengler's recently published book Black Earth, White Bread, A Technopolitical History of Russian Agriculture and Food. The music in this episode is brought to us by Chicago-based pianist Daniel Schlossberg, playing segments of Mussorgsky's Pictures of an Exhibition. Welcome to Scus Talks. Thank you, Natalie, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I was a Scus Fellow a few years ago before the pandemic when I had the chance to spend a year here. I just finished a book on Russian agriculture, and I look forward to talking to you about it. Yeah, great. Me too. So before we dive into your book, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about what your research is about, a bit broadly? Yeah, so I've been doing research on recent Russian history or on Russia's post-Soviet transformation And really the sort of the political and the economic and the social transformation that have happened since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. My first book was about electricity and the sort of transformation of electricity provision from a ministry to a market. And now uh, for quite a few years, I've been working on agriculture and the question what happened to Soviet state and collective farms. And in both projects, I really tried to get a better understanding of how the sort of big, vague changes that we do know about that Russia transitioned from a planned economy to a market economy, from a one-party state to a new political system, how these big, big changes actually look like for people and how they reshape everyday lives and how all of this becomes political as it unfolds. How come you got interested in this topic? 
I've been studying Russia for some time, but I came to realize that it's really a, a great place to study markets because markets are this weird thing that they're everywhere, right? And they're ubiquitous and normal and seem sort of natural. But we don't always know how they work. And, and I think economists tend to have a monopoly on talking about markets. But there's really many other angles. And I think other social sciences are coming around to that view that we need to think about how markets shape everyday lives and how they're political. And so Russia seemed to be a really great place to study these questions because market mechanisms are relatively new, right? So we see sort of how these markets are created and how they're political and how they're negotiated and what effects they have. So in fact, what spurred my interest in electricity many years ago is that there's lots of outages and electricity grids seem to crumble. And so that seemed to be sort of a sign that something was going wrong with the early market transition that was in the 90s, because people sort of associated failing infrastructure with a failing state in Russia. And that's because in the Soviet period, the construction of infrastructure like power grids and hydroelectric dams were really sort of associated with the success of Soviet socialism. So something was coming undone and something markets were sort of introduced to deal with that. And that worked in some places and not in others. So that was the first project. And then I sort of just stumbled upon the second project on agriculture because food seemed to be sort of similarly essential and political at the same time. This is a sidetrack, but when I was a teenager, my father forced me to learn Russian in the 80s uh -huh. mm -hmm. because he said, this is the next big market. You have to know Russian to be successful in life. Well, I want to say that's wonderful to hear. That must have been in Sweden, right? In Germany. Oh, in Germany? That's interesting. Yeah. But in West Germany. Yeah. So I feel like in the US, the sense was very much Russia is failing. And why in the world are you even interested in Russia? So it just goes to say that Russia is a bigger presence in Europe, which explains partly why I'm here, right? This was mid-80s. And mm -hmm. yeah, then in 89, 91, I mean, a lot of things happened in the East, right? Right. I should say that, you know, a lot of things are still happening in Russia. And, and people sometimes only have pre-existing ideas of what's happening in Russia. It's failing or it should be doing, should be developing markets and it's not. Much of my research is about actually looking more closely what is happening, right? And it's very dynamic. And I think there actually need to be a lot more people looking at what's happening in Russia. We're not enough. We're going to talk about bread today. This is the title of your book as well, or in the title of your book. Bread, I mean, everybody has associations to it. What do you think about when you think about bread? Well, I grew up eating bread for breakfast every day, right? And it's one of these things that we may take for granted. But when I did research for this book, I came to realize that on the one hand, it's this sort of very simple thing. There aren't a lot of ingredients in bread. And I guess it's not terribly hard to make compared to other things. But that it's actually sort of more than that. And that actually you do need flour to make bread, and then that usually requires wheat, and the wheat needs to be grown, right? So I found out that it ended up playing an important role in Russian history for all kinds of people. The research came back to bread many times because there's references throughout Russian history by many people about bread, right? So it starts with Lenin, who promised citizens bread along with land and peace. And that helped him win support for the revolution, really, that was otherwise sort of spearheaded by a tiny group of urban intellectuals, right? So bread played a big role already in 1917. 
And clearly that showed that citizens also worried about bread, right? Whether it was enough of it initially and later about the quality of bread and later again about the price of bread. And then, you know, because citizens worried, the governments, successive Russian governments thought about it a lot. And throughout the 20th and 21st century, there was a lot of concern about how to get enough wheat to make flour, to make bread, and and also how to build factories, right? So in Russia in the 20th century, bread wasn't baked by bakers. It was made in bread factories because that was sort of the industrial ideal of making more bread for more people and especially the industrial workforce and the Red Army soldiers. So, of course, then the farmers and the bread producers also worried about it, and scientists all worried about it too, right? The sort of Soviet wheat breeders paid attention to the bread-making quality of wheat, which was all kind of fascinating to me, how all these different people worried about something as simple as bread. In the end, that's sort of what the book is all about. So that at least partly answers my next question, why you decided to write this book. Yeah, I guess I have been sort of interested in food and agriculture for a long time. Probably hard to remember exactly when I became interested. What I noticed at some point is that food looks very different in different places. And I moved between the US and the UK and Europe and sort of struck me that the food people eat is quite different. And the food culture is different too. And it took me another few years to realize, well, that's because farms look different, right? And then when I was a PhD student in political science, I was like, well, that's because policies look different and governments do different things. So this project, the sort of question about what happened to Soviet farms started in California over 10 years ago when I just thought about different types of farms in different natural environments. California is very much farm country, so it's maybe not a surprise that the project was sort of born in California where everyone worries about farms and foods. But I became interested in the question, what happened to the Soviet state farms, the Kolkhozy and the Sofhozy? And I sort of thought there weren't really many good answers out there. So I set out to just ask that question, how they marketized and what happened when they were sort of faced with global competition in food commodities. Yes, and now you have been working on this book for quite some time, I guess. So how did your work evolve over time? Yeah, it is funny how long it takes to write books, right? <laughs> and it's funny how they do evolve over time. So the book started with a focus on the last 30 years, and I didn't expect that the question would take me so long to answer. But I realized sort of over time that I couldn't really answer the question about the last 30 years without writing a longer history about Russian farming and food, precisely because it has been so central for such a long time. So really, there's sort of two reasons why I ended up making this more of a 20th century and 21st century history. And the first reason was because I felt I couldn't explain recent changes without telling the story of what happened before, right? And also, I was fascinated by many of the parallels between what was happening in the early 21st century with what happened in the earliest 20th century, right? So many of the debates that the early revolutionaries had in 1920 seemed just as relevant 100 years later. So they worried about whether small farms were viable. Well, that question certainly is still very relevant. And they just had as many answers to that question as we, or few answers, I guess, than we have today. So that's in many ways how a recent project became a historical project. But the recent changes are still the 
main questions that motivated the research in the book. But you need a little bit more history to explain it. That's right. I've read the introduction of your book and you start there in 1998 when Boris Yeltsin has a problem. He and his team of liberal reformers, they faced the problem of rising bread prices. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and give our listeners this sort of picture of what happened there? Yeltsin came to power in 91, really with the idea that markets would solve all problems and that actually states were the source of the problem. So very liberal reforms were the sort of perceived solution. So privatization and price liberalization and the removal of trade barriers were sort of mainstays of the economic reforms of Yeltsin's economic policy team. And the second aspect of that is that these reforms were thought to have to happen really quickly because there was sort of a threat of the Communist Party coming back and resuming power if people had sort of time to get upset about the changes that marketization would bring, right? So a lot of these reforms happened quite quickly. And later on, most everyone realized that really not a lot of institutions were in place to deal with the effects of these reforms. So social policy reform hadn't happened and land was privatized, but there were no land markets and there were no capital markets to lend money to farmers to buy machines. So this is in fact what happened with land privatization. The former workers of collective farms were entitled to shares of their farms and they received these pieces of paper and technically could have started farming their their land, but only very few of them did that because actually farming the land was tricky and they didn't have the right machinery, didn't have access to capital. And sometimes the farm managers were opposed to privatization and didn't actually give them access to land. So many things didn't go according to plan. What did happen is that imports became very affordable because agricultural producers in the capitalist world were really efficient and it became cheaper to import flour and import meat from all over the world. But since they were produced abroad, a lot depended on things like exchange rates, inflation. And one of the big problems of Yeltsin's reforms is that they led to really fast and serious inflation. So people had practically no money to buy anything, even though imports from abroad were sort of cheap initially, as the ruble lost its value, they became expensive. So this happened in 98 after the collapse of the ruble or Russian default on the ruble. So all of this basically created a whole bunch of new problems and very few people had ways to solve that. And it all added up to economic collapse, which people across Russia felt as, well, there's no bread in my store and I can buy imported Swedish knäckebröd maybe if I'm in Moscow, but that will cost a lot of money or something like that. So your book is called Black Earth, White Bread, Techno-Political History of Russian Agriculture and Food. Shall we ponder a little bit on the title? First of all, start with Black Earth, White Bread. How come? Yeah, thanks for the question. The Black Earth refers to the Russian word Chernosim, and that is the word for the Russian farm belt. It refers to an area in the south of Russia, Ukraine, and then across Siberia and into Kazakhstan that has very rich 
fertile farmland. In fact, some of the most fertile farmland in the world. And for a long time, the Chernozem or the Black Earth sort of stood for the sort of riches of Russia's natural resources to provide abundance for the population. And so white bread stands for a particular promise of abundance that the socialist government made. And after the revolution, the idea was to sort of provide white bread, which was considered superior to everyone, to this masses. And this was the idea that, you know, white bread was sort of considered superior and stood for abundance wasn't just a Russian cultural idea. It was very much part of industrialization and industrialization of agriculture everywhere. But it, in Russia, it took on sort of a particular Russian meaning because the early revolutionaries at the time, and Anastas Mikoyan in particular, formulated a promise that the socialist government should make sure that workers were provided with white bread to reward them for the contribution to the revolution. So, of course, not everyone then had white bread, right? Some people had, in fact, no bread at all, and others did have white bread. So for many years and even decades, it was a sort of a promise rather than an actual reward. And then finally, technopolitics emerged as an important theme because it turned out that it was a way to capture the way in which governments actually related to agriculture in the 20th and 21st century. There was this sort of idea that technology would help them fulfill the promise of abundance to their populations. And they supported particular technologies and they supported particular actors that controlled these technologies, which then in turn changed the food system and the food in really interesting ways. So I managed to get technopolitics in the subtitle. In the book, you already mentioned it, you had to go back in history and you go all the way back to Lenin, who promised bread to the people. You have been a little bit into this, but did he fulfill his promise? Did he manage that? You know, this is a really big question. And in many ways, the book is about trying to find an answer. So the book provides a 300-page answer. So I'll, I'll uh, try to find a somewhat shorter answer. But I also ended up writing the book because I think this is actually not just a question about bread or even a question about agriculture, because it came actually to stand for a much larger question about whether Soviet socialism delivered on its promise for a better life, right? And so many people were actually in that interested in the answer about Russian agriculture, especially during the Cold War. And there were also many different answers, as you can imagine, since it was essentially a political question as much as it was a question about yields and agriculture and bread. So I feel like the short answer is that really, yes, absolutely. For some people in some places, the promise was fulfilled and then absolutely not in other places. The government let people down horribly and there was famine. So, so there's two things that I try to give equal weight to in the book, which is that on the one hand, Soviet history is marked by really traumatic famines in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Millions of people died from starvation, and that's a really important fact. It's quite well known that the most serious famines resulted from Stalin's decision to forcibly collectivize farms in 29 and 30 and the years that followed. And that was part of the ideological conviction that farmers had to serve workers so that the state needed to collectivize farms and essentially take away land and control what to do 
on this land from farmers and, and in turn force farmers to hand over grain at, at very low prices to state procurement agents. This was a brutal campaign that killed millions, especially in Ukraine, and scarred the Russian countryside for, for generations. And it continues to matter today for Ukraine. And you know, we, we see echoes of this trauma and the conflict between Russia and Ukraine today. So that's one side of the story that many people died as a result of collectivization and, and even later policies. On the other hand, virtually all Russians and Soviet citizens were less hungry in 1970 than they were in 1920. And this had to do with the kind of modernization that happened during that time on farms. And so many generally Soviet farms provided more or less enough food to feed the population, sometimes even some chocolates and some champagne and there was ice cream and but mostly there was sort of bread and herring and onions and potatoes. And there were also shortages, right? And an important further element of Soviet agriculture was that the state farms provided some of the food, but people actually also did a lot of their own farming. But overall, the sort of the system more or less provided adequate food for everyone. So in that way, the, the promise was kept, right? Because that wasn't the case before the revolution. But I don't think there's a simple answer to sort of did Lenin keep his promise. It's ultimately up to, to Russian citizens to, to judge that. And by the late 80s, shortages and long lines in stores did play a role in the sort of general satisfaction and the longing for a different way to organize the economy. Things didn't really suddenly improve in the 90s. In fact, they got a lot worse in the 90s. But I argue also that under Putin, more people have access to affordable food and that has contributed to his popularity. I remember being in Russia in the early 90s, 91. I lived with the family for two weeks. And mm -hmm. when you went to the shops, you saw these long lines and there was nothing in the shops. But then you were invited for dinner somewhere and the table was full. It was like bending almost. You're a guest and they offer the best. That's a really interesting experience. And I think the important thing to remember is that people spent a lot of time and efforts and social capital and networking to try to get the scarce goods, right? So there's an unequal distribution of goods and there wasn't always enough of the most desirable commodities for everyone. But it's wonderful to hear that you had, were able to enjoy them on special occasions, right? So there was this sort of like idea that holidays and guests were important and special foods were available for those occasions, which is quite nice. You were into Stalin and the collectivization of farms. Do you want to say anything more about that? What happened subsequently? I feel like the successive Soviet regimes had to sort of solve the problem of how to get enough bread on the table or how to procure wheat or how to make farms more efficient. There was a sort of, over the years, there was an intense preoccupation about yields and efficiency, but it was also very hard for centrally planned agriculture to do justice to the diversity of farming across a very large geographical territory. So the Soviet governments always had these top-down plans of how to solve this grain problem, right, which Stalin initially encountered and had a very brutal solution to. Khrushchev expanded arable land in Siberia and Central Asia, and then Brezhnev applied more agri-chemicals and other inputs 
But none of these sort of top-down universal solutions really helped all that much, and the state had to continue pouring resources into agriculture. So Yeltsin's solution was to privatize. That also didn't work. And so Putin comes to power. There's a lot of grievances about inflation and food prices, and people had low salaries and couldn't even buy enough food to host guests on New Year's Eve, and that was a big deal. So Putin's solution in many ways was a response to previous efforts. And in more general terms, the sort of Soviet history of agriculture very much shapes the post-Soviet current history. And perhaps the most important way is that Lenin's nationalization and Stalin's collectivization essentially eliminated historical claims on land. So unlike in Eastern Europe, farmland ownership had been radically disrupted many generations ago. So there wasn't really a movement to reclaim ancestral family land, right? And because of this obstacles I mentioned previously, many collective farm workers essentially wanted to leave to cities and, and then they sold their shares to corporations. And because there wasn't really a movement to reclaim land by large groups of population that agricultural corporations very rapidly could accumulate land, which now means that these companies called agri-holdings control the most fertile farmland in Russia, and they control immense land holdings and millions of hectares, actually hundreds of millions of hectares. And they gained this ownership of farmland in a really short time. And Putin takes credit for making farms more efficient, but he couldn't have done that and the agri-holdings couldn't have done that had there been smaller farms and more historical claims on land. So really, Putin's reforms go back to Stalin's collectivization, were made possible by Stalin's collectivization. Who owns the land now? Most of the fertile farmland is owned by these agri-holdings. In the Soviet Union, a lot of the farmland was marginal land and in the northern regions, right? But in the Black Earth, the farmland is now owned by these agri-holdings that are basically corporate farms. They're vertically integrated agri-food corporations, and they own the land, they try to produce their own seeds, they do their own farming, then they do their own harvesting and food processing. They're not family farms. They're, they hire migrant labor and sometimes village labor. And the most perhaps interesting thing about them is that they have a lot of capital, right? So they could buy all this land and they could upgrade technology and make farming more efficient, which is also why they received a lot of political support to buy land and to upgrade facilities. And so the control of agri-holdings of Russian land is just as much a story about technology and efficiency as it is about political support to do precisely that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about technology then. There is a lot of technological advancement everywhere in the world within agriculture. And how is that, those possibilities, how are those used in, in Russia on these farms that are owned by these companies? <laughs> yeah, that is correct. And that's in fact something I learned while I was researching the book. There is a lot of technological advancement in agriculture. Agriculture is very high tech in the 21st century. And the way I came to realize that is when I first started a project, I interviewed representatives of agri-holdings and they were really polite in answering all my questions. But the questions they're really interested in were, were the questions about technology. And they sort of went on at length about all the new 
factories and tools and machines and technologies. You know, it was surprising to me just how many stages of the production chain there's really cutting edge technological solutions to various problems. And then I learned a lot about 21st century farming from these conversations. And, and later on, I realized that this sort of excitement about technology actually wasn't new at all. That's in fact what sort of early Soviet agronomists felt in the 1920s too. Of course, the sort of technology was different and the technological edge had moved light years. But there was sort of a similar attitude that technology was the solution to the bread problem and was really the key for a better future for the Soviet Union 100 years ago and for Russia today. And it's to some extent true that farming technologies have led to more abundant production in Russia, right? So currently, Russia increased wheat production, wheat uh, yields, and wheat export, and is the largest wheat exporter. But it wasn't just the Soviet Union who supported agricultural modernization. And throughout the 20th century, many countries have done that, which in turn led to overproduction of some commodities. And that in turn led to lower prices, which in turn made farming for small farms more difficult. So the book is not about, yay, technology makes everything better. It's meant to sort of show how government support for technology has led to certain outcomes that also make the food system more vulnerable in other ways. Yeah, and you can control technology and other support other things with the money and politics. But one thing you can't control is the weather. That's right. And more broadly, soils and climate and nature, right? So that ended up being an important part of the book, too, that agriculture was always sort of an attempt to make nature pliable for this political utopian vision of a more abundant life. And sometimes it worked out and then sometimes it didn't work out and failed miserably or spectacularly. And there's the Soviet Union, is, it's quite clear where these failures happen. And of course, there's now a growing critique of industrial agriculture across the world. And we have a growing list of concerns with effects of industrial agriculture. But what I would try to show in this book, it really is about industrial agriculture of both the socialist planned variety as well as of the capitalist variety, right? It already happened in the Soviet Union and it's happening in capitalist countries. And moving on along technological possibilities, in one chapter you address breeding, both plant and animal breeding also, I think, within agriculture. And there also the potential use of gene technology. CRISPR-Cas9 is, of course, on, on everybody's mind since it's a new technology that was awarded with the Nobel Prize, and it looks quite good in plant breeding. So what about breeding and gene technology? What have you found in your research? Yeah, so one of the things I just found is that it was incredibly important for Soviet researchers throughout the 20th century, right? And it actually, Russia instituted plant breeding institutes in late imperial Russia, and they continued to be really active and important for Soviet agriculture for many decades. And people tend to know the political story of how Stalin favored Lysenko over genetic research that was recognized in the West. But really, that's only one aspect of the story. Those plant breeding institutes continued to work throughout the Soviet Union. And so CRISPR-Cas9 is just really the most recent aspect of this technological change that's transforming plant breeding and therefore also transforming food systems. 
And the Russian government, as well as researchers in Russia, are really excited about the promise of CRISPR-Cas9 as a technological tool. And I was, in fact, a bit surprised when I found that out, because there's sort of two reasons why this wouldn't be the case. And one reason is that there's actually a ban on genetic modification in Russia. So there are no genetically modified food can be produced or sold because of a law that was passed, I think, in the 90s. And so why would Russia allow CRISPR-Cas9 if it prohibits genetic engineering? And that's really sort of the question I, I just asked as a social scientist from plant breeders that I met a couple of years ago in Petersburg. And this plant breeder just told me, well, we should think about CRISPR-Cas9 as the editing of genes and the targeted deletion and insertion of genes, and as such is really uh, different from previous technologies. So this is how the Russian plant breeding community thinks about it and tries to talk about it too. But he also let me in on the fact that wheat is hexaploid, which meant that old genetic engineering technologies were really too blunt to do anything to wheat, right? So they were really kind of like a tough nut to crack, and there was no genetically modified wheat. And wheat is the most important commodity crop in Russia. So I later found out that Monsanto had tried to come up with GMO wheat and actually failed and sort of never, never went through with it. So this was kind of a puzzle piece that made it all fall into place because CRISPR-Cas9 allows Russia and Russian researchers to produce genetically modified wheat, right? So it's seen as having a huge potential for Russian wheat production. Because I also know that Russia had a long and distinguished history of wheat breeding, CRISPR-Cas9 just appeared as the logical sort of most recent opportunity in, in this history. And then finally, there's a geopolitical angle because Russia has become more antagonistic towards the West in the last decade or so. It does not want to rely on foreign and Western companies for essential technologies. And it certainly regards weeds as, as an essential technology. So, so there's sort of a number of things that fell into place and explain why Russia is really excited about CRISPR-Cas9 and actually supports it with a lot of research money and supports private producers as well. Yeah, a lot of people in plant breeding are very excited about mm -hmm. CRISPR-Cas9, so it's not unique to <laughs> Russia. Right. Russia kind of wants to not miss out on what they call the CRISPR bonanza. I've heard a Russian researcher say, we don't want to miss out on this bonanza. So clearly it's happening elsewhere, but Russia wants to be part of that trend. And maybe we should also say that the point of genetic engineering is to make better harvest, make better crops, and maybe make them insect resistant and whatever traits you want to introduce, right? Right. And Russian researchers are actually also very aware of global warming and how that will create a very different environment for pests and other blights and droughts affecting plants. So there's sort of a need for different seeds that are more drought resistance, right? Drought resistance and pests have, of course, always been around, but now they're changing at, an, at a different rate. And again, you know, Russian researchers are very aware of this, and this betrays the idea that Russia doesn't care about climate change. Russian researchers certainly do care about climate change. Okay, is there anything more that you would like to sort of lift out from the book or emphasize? This is a book about Russian food and agriculture. 
But I'm hoping that it would be interesting for people who are not necessarily interested in Russia, because I think it offers lessons how we can think about food and agriculture in other contexts, right? And in the contemporary moment as well. So one aspect of the book is to sort of draw attention to technologies and the fast moving technological edge and how governments support particular technologies because they fit into their political and ideological agenda. And this is something that comes out really clearly in Russian history. And, you know, it's, it explains why Stalin liked tractors and explains why Putin likes CRISPR-Cas9. But it isn't just about autocratic regimes and dictators. <laughs> Democratic governments and Western capitalist liberal democracies have also supported technologies. And this had intended effects to make farming more efficient, but it also had unintended effects. And so the second big point that I'm hoping to bring across with the book is, is really that agriculture isn't just what happens on the farm. It's really also about the food we eat. It's about the governments that want to put particular foods on citizens' plates. So governments play a role and citizens play a role. And food and agriculture is both about the sort of material facts of bread and other food commodities, but it's also about the political life and the cultural meaning of food that are sometimes left out of the pictures, right? And so finally, agriculture takes place in a natural environment. And so it involves soil and climate and plants and animals. And all of this seems quite intuitive. Of course, nobody would dispute that my bread was once a plant, right? But I think it has important implications for how we talk about food systems and how we study food systems. And it really is not so helpful to just talk about one of these domains. And it's really important to recognize connections between the domains of production, consumption, governance, and nature. So I'm hoping that there's more research that sort of tracks these links between these domains. left SCAS in 2019 to go back to your home university in the US, but at the moment you're back in Sweden to work on a new project called Post-Soviet Harvests, Understanding Uneven Rural Recovery in the Post-Soviet Region. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project? Yes, I'd be happy to. So this project came out of the realization that, of course, the Soviet Union was bigger than Russia. And while I had focused most of my research on Russia, similar dynamics were going on in other post-Soviet countries, similar and different dynamics. So it was quite remarkable that the collapse of the 90s actually affected virtually all post-Soviet countries. It was a very, very hard time. The disintegration of the Soviet planned economy led to sort of collapse of production and inflation and difficulties for farms to restart under a new market economy for farms in all these countries. And the, the collapse lasted for most of the 90s. And then what happened is that in some countries, farms seemed to recover, and in other countries, they did not. And this wasn't actually just a geographical phenomenon that where countries varied from each other. It was actually something where some commodities, some crops did better, and some regions within some countries. So it wasn't just that fruits recovered 
in Uzbekistan, it was that wheat recovered in northern Kazakhstan, but not further south. So the project is sort of an attempt to understand what happened on these farms, right? What helped some farms recover? And again, since I'm a political scientist and I tend to think that governments play a, a big role, I'm asking, you know, which countries had governments that prioritized farming and subsidies to rural producers and in which countries this was really uh, subordinated to other sectors such as oil and gas. And then agri-holdings, as I mentioned previously, these agricultural corporations became more prevalent in some countries and were largely absent in others. And then finally, this is also a story about climate and soil conditions, right? So the Soviet Union was notorious or famous for farming in unfavorable climates, right? And just pouring in resources to try to sustain farms in marginal lands. And, and these farms have, in fact, not recovered. So, so climate plays a, a big role, and I'm trying to figure out what the implications of that are. So the, the project is supported by the Baltic Foundation, and the Baltic Foundation is connected to Södertörn University. So I'm currently spending some time at Södertörn to talk about these things with my colleagues there. How long will you be doing this project? So right now it's a, it's a two-year project, but unfortunately the pandemic has made fieldwork really difficult. I have directed the project a little bit towards the question of how soil and climate and rainfall affects farming, because I actually do have data on these environmental conditions. I have great data on rainfall going back to the 1960s. So one of the smaller projects is I compare wheat production in Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan and, and try to figure out if this post-Soviet trajectory of wheat production was all about rain and droughts in these three countries. But I'm continuing to hold out hope that I can answer other questions with regard to these uneven recoveries. And they're big questions, and, and I don't pretend that I'll come up with one answer, but I'll come up with case studies, hopefully, that can shed light on the bigger questions. You still want to go to field studies? And yes. I feel like the way I do research is I have to actually talk to people who know more about these questions than I do. And that's like the biologist in Petersburg who was enlightening me on very basic facts about wheat genetics. But since I'm a social scientist, I had never thought about it. But that's always been actually the way I find answers to my questions is, is that I go to places and talk to people who know more than I do. So thinking about talking to people who know more than you do, you were a scholar here at SCAS in 2018 and 2019. And what was your experience of this research environment, especially in terms of multi and interdisciplinarity? It was just probably the most conducive environment to write a book like that, because I often felt like I was being led by the material, but then uh, into territory that was quite unknown to me, right? So in the book, I have a chapter about governments and political priorities and agricultural policies. And that is actually quite familiar territory to political science. But then I ventured out into other environments, such as consumption culture and why the Soviet Union early on placed so much emphasis on champagne and chocolate. And really, I didn't 
have the tools to answer that question, started reading a lot of anthropology. And when it came to the question of technologies and agriculture more broadly, I sort of had these big questions about, wasn't it always about technology? And so SCAS was an environment where there's people who had already thought about these questions from different angles, right? So there's something about knowledge production that's very bound by disciplinary conventions. But being in a place like SCAS, you can talk to people who are not bound by the same disciplinary conventions and you can sort of ask very innocent questions. And I distinctly remember asking another fellow who was a historian very basic questions about history writing. I asked him, how does this count as a source? And, and he said, yes, it's fine. Just go right ahead. And then I asked the archaeologist, like, can I say that technology influenced agriculture and modes of living? And he says, yeah, sure, of course, go right ahead. So SCAS was an environment where I sort of just felt I was able to pursue these lines of inquiry and find solutions and then just kind of write them up as they seem to present themselves in my research. I didn't have to always already be in conversation with the body of scholarship in my discipline, right? Every discipline asks different questions, but because there's so many disciplines coming together at SCAS, there's many different questions that can be asked. So I really enjoyed that. It's nice to hear that also everybody encouraged you to go on with your thoughts. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes, they didn't bring down the disciplinary sword and said, no, not this. Yeah. Yeah. Or saying this is not the way we do it. Yeah, that could have gone the other way. It's probably how Christina and Bjorn select fellows too, right? Open-mindedness is sort of a condition for being here. And then, I mean, you, you went back. What have you taken away from SCUS with you to your home research environment, so to say? Well, I guess the most practical thing I took home was just the draft of the book manuscript, right? Funny enough, or not so funny, is that the pandemic started pretty soon after return to the U.S. And it was hard to collect new material and it was hard to find time. It was a much more distracted time. So I, what I took home was this sort of book material that I then could just turn into a book. But I think more broadly, it was also just the idea that this might be interested to different people in different disciplines, right? And that it was okay to write chapters that talk to entirely different questions and different debates, and that this was also a viable way to write a book. And also just to tackle big questions. I think maybe the, a viable way to tackle big questions are maybe just the only way we can tackle these big questions, because our knowledge is so partial and so defined by the questions we ask, we really need to talk to other people. I think I took away from SCAS the idea that interdisciplinarity was a more interesting way to conceive of projects and to answer big questions. Did you bake any bread during the pandemic? A lot of people started bread baking and so on. I did. I started bread baking and gardening and Bread baking was a lot more successful than gardening. <laughs> I did not quite overcome the resistance of the soil in my backyard. It wasn't quite as conducive. But the, yes, I did start baking bread. It was very rewarding. Anything you would like to add? You know, I wasn't sure how big this project would be when I first started it. And it ended up being just much bigger than I thought, as often happens. But one of the way it became interesting to me is that agriculture was a way humans relate to nature, right? And I think that's become a big question. How do we relate to nature? How do the ways that have been conceived since the Industrial Revolution's 
need to be questions, right? And so I, f- I felt like there was big questions that are sort of hidden in this history of Russian agriculture. It's not that all the questions are answered, but new questions are actually on the table. And I'm hoping that other people will look at food systems and agriculture to answer these big questions about, I call it the human nature nexus, but other people have better words for it. But it's certainly a question that's going to be with us for a long time. Thank you very much for joining me here in the wonderful studio of SCAS and talking to me and our listeners, of course, on this episode in SCAS Talks. Thank you, Natalie, and thank you, Bjarne, for the technology. And it's wonderful to be back at SCAS in person. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the third episode in the theme Infrastructures, and I have talked to Susan Wengle, Associate Professor in Political Science at the University of Notre Dame in the US and URIAS Fellow at SCAS in the academic year of 2018-2019. We have heard more about her recently published book, Black Earth, White Bread, A Technopolitical History of Russian Agriculture and Food. In the two previous episodes, within the same theme, I have talked to Elise Demenier-Reuterswart, Associate Professor of Economic History at Stockholm University and Pro Futura Ciencia Fellow at SCAS about her current book project with the working title Banking Before Banks, Credit and Debt in Pre-Industrial France. This was episode 23. In episode 26, we had Ash Amin, Professor of Geography and Fellow of Christ College, University of Cambridge in the UK, about his work on mental health in slum areas in Delhi in India. Currently, SCAS Talks is featuring the following topics. Life sciences, infrastructures and Asia. Previous topics have been the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa and life in outer space. We are sure that there is something of interest for everybody. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Susan Wengle once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. A special thanks also to Chicago-based pianist Daniel Schlossberg for playing segments of Mussorgsky's Pictures of an Exhibition for us. And of course, thank you for listening. Bye for now.